So, how many of us like to set goals for ourselves in life? Anybody? Anybody set goals? Certain priorities, they want to get something done, something accomplished? Usually when the new year hits, everybody's got something they want to do different this new year that they didn't do the previous year, and hopefully not the previous decade. Uh, But sadly, what happens is many of us, we've talked about this before, uh, we start off well, and for some reason, the goal that we set, we forget about, or we realize it's so unrealistic, we give up on it. But I would suggest there's also another thing that happens sometimes, is we readjust the goal. So when the goal seems to be too high, we don't just say, oh, you know, I don't know if I could do this. Okay, I couldn't do that, now I'm going to do something a little less. I can't go to the gym five days a week. I'll go to the gym three times. Guess what happens a few months later? I'm going to go to the gym once. Guess what happens a few months later? Zero. So, as time goes on, we readjust our goals based on what we are experiencing at that time. And sadly, what most people do when it comes to goal setting in their life is they have different ways of looking at goals from each other. In fact, one of the things that we'll talk about this in a little bit here One of the things that makes goal setting a big deal for most of us is that we feel like, you know what, we're going to get something done, right? There's like a motivation behind it. Like, I'm going to feel like I've accomplished something because I'm setting this goal. Is it true, though, that setting the goal is not the accomplishment? Right? Like, setting the goal is not the accomplishment. But sadly, most people think by setting the goal, they have the feeling that they're going to definitely get it done. And then as you get into the daily life, you realize it's not so easy to follow through on the goal that you set, right? Things come up, people get angry at you, you get frustrated at them, all of a sudden your testimony just went out the window, right? I'm going to be a better worker. Uh Aha, what happens? Didn't go so well, did it? Well, I'm going to be a better spouse. And we just blew up. Well, I'm going to be a better parent. Sorry, son, I shouldn't have said it the way that I did. We set all these goals for ourselves, and what ends up happening is we fail because we have one thing in common with every person on this earth. We're sinners. In fact, one of the areas of life that I think we as Christians, as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, should set as a priority and as a mission or a goal is spreading the gospel. And sadly, what most of us are willing to admit is we fail at that, but what we never do is get back up and go, let's try it again. Look, you may have blown it with your unsaved family member. I may have blown it with a coworker, But there's still hope. Why do we give up? Because what, what happens to most of us is we think that based on our performance, that person can no longer come to Christ. And I'm going to argue that that is the most false statement that you and I can make to ourselves. You're not asking people to follow you ultimately. You're asking people to follow Him. And guess what? You can give a person hope by them seeing that you're just as jacked up as they are. 
And you both need Jesus just as much. But what tends to happen is we find ourselves constantly frustrated that we're not getting the the goal accomplished and we end up quitting many times. So ask yourself, why is it that you gave up on certain people in your life? Why is it that you've given up on reaching certain people all around you that God's called you to reach? Why? If it's based on anything to do with you, then you've got the wrong reason to quit. You are not the reason that that person would come to saving faith in Christ. Let me also give you another disclaimer. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't convict them. And the problem is, is too many of us are trying to do the work of God by human hands. Without His empowerment. And that's why when people say, oh, I'll just be loving. It's not enough. Why? Because if you're just saying to be loving, but you're not in the Word, you're not going to give them any truth. And we know the highest form of love is agape love, which comes from God Himself. And that love can only be found if you're in the Word. God doesn't zap us with words to say to people if you're not in here. It's one of the reasons why I stress it, and I will continue to stress it this year. If you're not in the Word, you can't reach people. You can't. It's impossible. Oh, God may use it in spite of what you're doing. I I agree that there are some anomalies on that. But the sad reality is, for the most part, God uses only a holy vessel. Go throughout Scripture. Are, we pe- are people faithful to God all the time? No, they're not. But God comes back and He shares a word with them and says, Look, here's what I want you to do. Christ, when He left this earth, left us with exactly the same message. He, he started His ministry with the disciples by telling them, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And He ended His ministry by telling them, Look at this, He says, All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You see, most people don't realize that when Jesus was ministering, he was spending over 90% of his time with 12 men. See, most of us think of the feeding of the 5,000 and those major points that we talk about. But really, Jesus spent the majority of his time with 12 men. And out of those 12, he had the most intimate experience with three, Peter, James, and John. One of the sad realities for us many times is when we look at the Word of God, we don't believe that the Word applies to us in the same way that it applied to those that heard it originally. This commandment was not just for the apostles or the disciples. This was to be passed on to us. Notice how he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Guess what was a commandment here? To make disciples. You and I don't get exclusions here. So as we open the text this morning and kind of dig in a little bit more, I want to ask a couple things. One thing just to kind of reiterate what we've been talking about, we mentioned the importance of discipleship, which is intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. We talked about the different mindsets between Hellenistic thought and Hebraic thought. 
that he, uh, Hellenistic thought always wanted a tight, systematic logic, whereas Hebraic thought was fine with apparent contradictions. Hellenistic thought is more focused on ideas, words, definitions, outlines, bullet points, such as you see up there. Um, Hebraic thought is more focused on symbols, pictures, stories, imagery, and poetry. And Hellenistic thought is, is to speak to the head first, then to the heart, whereas Hebraic thought is to speak to the heart first, then to the head, although they, both, they intertwine both of them when they talk to people. So, we talked about this part, and I really am going to tie into what we're, we're, where we're going this morning on what is your mission. Uh, we talked about what, is it, what, is, what does this tie into as far as being a disciple. To the Hebraic mind, one's deeds must follow one's words. We talked about this last week. They are false, empty, and counterfeit if that's not included. To the Hebraic mind, quality of one's life was more important than the knowledge one possessed. To the Hebraic mind... Faith was not only a mental ascent, but rather a continual action that followed in line with the confession. Faith, obedience, they're tied in. We spoke of the fact that Jesus is the model and the mindset, which is the Hellenistic thought versus the uh, Hebraic thought. Today, we'll also discuss the mission. And I want to ask, what is your goal or what are your goals in life? I just want you to think for a second, what are my goals? What am I aiming for in life? And some goals are good, good goals. They don't necessarily have to be biblical or spiritual goals. They're good goals for you. Let's say, for example, you want to be healthy. And you want to see your, great, you know, your, your grandchildren grow up. That's a good goal. It's a good goal to have. But I want to ask you, what's your goal? What are your, what are your main goals in life? Do you have one that kind of surpasses all of them? Like, this is my ultimate. I have all these other things I want to get done in my life, but this is my ultimate that I want to get done before my life is over. Because here's the thing, folks. Unless Jesus returns, you're going to be called home. And what you leave behind is going to matter. It's not a light statement to say that legacy matters. Of course it does. And sadly, I think what happens sometimes is people, even outside the faith, tend to want to leave a legacy, though it's not a biblical one, more than believers do, which makes no sense. You would think that disciples, followers of Jesus, would want to leave a legacy behind. Uh, but sadly, we many times get kind of caught in the rut and stop even pursuing the things that God has called us to. So we're going to take a look at the three different types of people when it comes to goals. And then we're going to kind of break some things down um, in, in the Lord's Prayer. Number one, the person that sets goals but doesn't get them done. Okay? That's the first kind of person when it comes to goals. Uh, number two, the person that doesn't set goals, there's no reason to potentially fail. Right? We're not going to set goals because we're going to fail anyway, so what's the point of setting goals? Um, and then number three, number three, the person that sets goals and does whatever it takes to accomplish the goal. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get it done. So you're probably thinking, okay, which, which person am I? And I'm going to argue that you're all three. How do I know? Well, let's start off with, with one example. For a playoff football game, you and I, if we like sports... We'll move everything around to make sure we get to sit in front of that TV and watch the whole game, right? So, so we're pretty much option three there, okay? Like, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure we watch that playoff game if the Patriots are playing, right? Like, okay? Follow where I'm going, okay? A believer sets out to read the Bible in one year. They get started strong in the beginning, get through most of January, and all of a sudden they get sidetracked in March. They no longer... Uh, stay on track, and what they do is they rarely read the rest of the year, ultimately 
failing and getting the goal done. So they're option one right there. And then, a church, this might apply to us, a church wants to be more loving towards others in the community, but doesn't exactly set out to do any particulars, leaving the church stuck with no gauge. So that would be more option two. We don't set goals because, you know, if we, if we don't set goals, we don't have to worry about failing, right? I would argue that it's important for us to understand where our priorities are to where we set the goal and we aim and we try to hit it. And we do whatever it takes. And that is one thing that I want to ask as your pastor, that you start considering making disciples that kind of a goal. That you're going to do whatever it takes to reach people around you. This thing called crazy that a lot of people look at Christians as, that's what I want you to be. You're passionate about Jesus to the point where you look crazy to people. Why would you really want to reach people that much? Because Christ paid it all for you. That's why you want to reach other people. It might look crazy to the world, but that's exactly what Christ has called you to. Hey, there's a lot of encouragement in the book of Acts as you read through it this year. You're going to see that the disciples didn't exactly have no opposition. They had plenty of opposition. Hush, hush, be quiet, don't say anything. We can't help but speak of the things we've seen and heard. Can't help it. The reasons why Christians can help it is because the word is not in them, so they don't have anything to really share with anyone. So one thing to understand is that this mission that Christ has called us to is a co-mission. That means that we work on this together. We're not going to send spies secretly trying to reach people for Jesus ultimately. This is a mission that God has called us to coordinate together. So one of the things I really want to encourage is if somebody's trying to reach a coworker, a friend, somebody that they know around them for Christ, that you and I, we encourage that person and we pray for them. And don't have this sour attitude that because you had a bad week and someone's actually on fire for the Lord that week, that you're going to sit there and put their fire out. Stop doing that. There are too many Christians that do that to others. They find themselves constantly putting out other people's fires that are passionate for the Lord. Don't be that extinguisher, okay? God lights a fire, let that fire burn in a person's heart. It's too easy to be that nagging person or that negative bitter soul that someone comes up to and then, hey, guess what God did for me? Well, must be nice. You should have heard how my week went. Can we just stop being those kind of people in this church? Just personal request. Like, do we have bad days? Has anybody not had a bad day in this church? Or am I like the only one? We do, right? But why do we always feel like we have to tell everybody how bad our day is and when someone has a great day, we don't even enjoy that with them? Hey, guess what? I prayed and God answered a prayer like that. Good for you. I wish he'd answer my prayers. Well, with that attitude, I don't know that he would want to. Or that his answer would be anything you'd like. You see... We as a church need to make making disciples the mission. The goal. And this is not optional. This is what it's all about. I want you to be so zealous about this that when someone gets saved in this church, you're just as pumped as you were when you first got saved. You see, that's the problem with a lot of Christians. God changes them from the inside out. They're excited. God changes things in their life. And then when someone else gets, gets, if you will, called out for their sin and God convicts them and they walk with the Lord, 
we for some reason don't have the same thrill for them. We're kind of like Jonah when Nineveh repents. Really? Let me go sit under my tree. They don't deserve it. No, we don't. We don't deserve it. In fact, the mindset we spoke on last week, we as Westerners are very much individualistic. And sadly, to our shame, we tend to live outside the community of the church and wonder why we're not getting much accomplished. If you want to reach the world, you need to be in community with believers. In fact, that's one of the reasons why missionary work is so important. A church sends out missionaries to go reach somebody else, and then guess what happens there? They grow a church. But in America, it's backwards. I'm going to do things my way, attend when I want. It's not a big deal. I already know God. I already know who Jesus is. It's not a big deal. And we don't get the fact that the mission takes a church. It's not individualistic. It's community. To stress how important this is, let's look at the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples. And I want you to kind of understand the sense of community in the way he prays. This is, this is mind-blowing. Hopefully you start re- readjusting your way of thinking ever since we talked about the mindset differences last week. So we're going to look at prayer's missional alignment. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 14. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 14. Text says, in this manner, this is Jesus telling his disciples, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want you to see the communal perspective of Christ when he teaches his disciples to pray. He doesn't say, my Father who is in heaven. He says, our Father in heaven. There's a perspective that is, that is very much lost in the Western thought because we think so individualistically. And what tends to happen is you and I don't see how we're affecting those around us here in this church. And the reason we don't see how we're affecting other people in this church is we say, well, I'm out this Sunday. That should make a difference. They're not going to care. Can I tell you personally that that does matter? It does matter that you're in community with other believers. It does matter that you're here in church faithfully attending. It is not being legalistic to ask for community that Christ calls for. If we're talking about legalism, then all the commandments of Scripture would make us all legalists. And sadly, they're the most loving thing that God could have done for us. The reason why God prohibits certain things, like sexual sin outside of marriage is because he realizes that it destroys not just the outside but the inside too. 
You and I can't live the way we ought to before God if we're not fighting sin directly from God's word. You see, there's a lot of mechanisms that a lot of people in, you know, have been used to. So what ends up happening is, and we've talked about this before, we swap an idol and think that that's done better. In fact, I wrote a list out for the students, and I said, the problem with a lot of the way we're taught to fight sin is, you have your sins that you struggle with, let's say you had lust, you had covetousness, you know, and then envy, right? So we, we overcome lust, and we figure we figured it all out. Now we're good, we get to move on to the next ones. Only to find that as we're trying to struggle against covetousness or envy, guess what comes back up, rearing its ugly head? It's like whack-a-mole, folks. You've got to be aware. Okay? Sin pops up just like that. And assuming that you've conquered it once and for all is the most false thing you can believe. How do we know that? Because people that years later fall into the same sin that they did 10, 20 years ago, they're a testimony to that. There are people that you and I know that were faithful followers of Jesus that walked away for a little while and all of a sudden sin overtook their lives. They don't attend church anymore. They don't want to be around believers. God is not on their priority list. Sin is so deceitful. It's not something that's easy for us to pay attention to. In fact, the problem with sin is that you and I only think of only certain ones that we fall into. The ones that we're so obviously constantly asking for forgiveness for. Let me, let me suggest that there are dozens of others that you probably have not asked for forgiveness for. Because you're so consumed with that one or two. And that's one of the reasons why you need to have David's heart and David's attitude. Search me. Try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. But it's the right prayer to pray. So in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 14, as we kind of break the passage out, I want you to ask God to specifically help you in praying for God's working in three specific groups. Okay? Three specific groups. Number one, or A, the home, the church, and the world. And I want you to start with the home first. Fathers, husbands, pray for your family. Pray for your wife. Pray for your children. How often are you doing that? Pray for your children's heart to come to the Lord. Stop worrying about their financial success. There's a greater thing at stake, their eternal soul. You should want them to succeed in this life. Joshua talks about having good success. But if you're not on mission to make disciples in the home, you won't be on mission to make disciples outside the home. The reason why a lot of our families don't reach anybody else is we don't haven't reached our own. Now, can you be God and can you change your children's heart? No, you can't. But you can create the environment where God speaks in your home and the children see it. You can give God credit when you get a bonus at work. Men. You can give God credit that you got a really nice design figured out from Pinterest, ladies. You can give God credit that God gave you the opportunity to be able to do the things in your home that you never thought you'd be able to do years ago. It's only God's mercy that we have what we have. 
And yet we're not thankful. And if we are, we're thankful for so little. When was the last time you thanked God for your children? Even the ones that annoy you. You think God's not annoyed with us? You think God doesn't look down and says, Oh, you know what? They're just doing wonderful all the time. Oh, if we had the testimony of Job, all of us. An upright man, blameless in his generation. Or like Noah, although he ended up messing up later. If you've been doing your Bible reading, you see what happens. Wine, bad combo. So number two, pray for the church. Pray for our church. Pray for our leadership. If you're not in leadership in this church, I ask that you please pray for us. You think we always make the right decisions? No. You think we know what we're doing all the time? No. Do we need a lot of God's wisdom? Yes. Do we need a lot of patience? Yes. Pray for our church. Pray also how you can be a better, if you will, disciple in our church. How you can reach someone else. How you can help someone else. Pray for the impact that we can have as a church. I pray for our mayor because God has called me to pray for those in authority over me. And believe me, there's a lot of things I don't agree with our leadership on. But God's called us to pray for those in authority over us. The last thing is pray for the world. Pray for your government, which I just mentioned. Pray for your coworkers, the ones that you think that there's no hope that God would reach them. Pray for your neighbors. Do your, parents, do your neighbors know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Or do they know that you just have a nice, cute family with some kids and a nice house? Pray for your lost friends or family. Make it a point to pray for their salvation. And to not stop because you don't see any results right now. We all have people we love that are not walking with God or don't know God. And I'm just asking as your pastor that you take it seriously enough to where you don't stop praying even when you don't see results. Because here's what's amazing about prayer. The people that you and I have the biggest struggles with sometimes around us, when we're praying for them, it's just very hard to hold something against them. God just does something in you that cuts that Jealousy, that frustration, that anger. Quite a few notches. Maybe not permanently, maybe not all the way down. But it's just easier to get along with people if you're praying for them. And I would suggest that many times we don't get along well with one another because we're never praying for one another. Understand that praying for people, there may be and usually is an action that you must take as well. And we're going to take a look at some of these actions gleaned from the prayer that Jesus models for the disciples. 
It says, Our Father in heaven. In order to have God as your Father, you must accept the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the starting point. In order for you to pray this prayer, Our Father, you need to be a part of the community of God, ultimately the church. You need to have accepted Jesus Christ. You must repent, change your mind about your sin and realize that you have nothing to offer God and you have to put your full trust in what Christ has done on your behalf. Your father is the devil if you have not done that. Everybody has a father. The question is, whose father? Who's the father? Number two, hallowed be your name. You must show reverence for God's name and how you live. This isn't just a prayer you pray and say, Lord, hallowed be your name. Sacred, holy is your name. You don't just pray it without living what you pray. Make Bible reading a priority. Church attendance a priority. Discipleship a priority. Speaking often of what God has rescued from a priority. Look, people don't care how much you know of the Bible. They know that you have the Bible in you lived out. They want to see that when you say God is holy, you're living that he's holy. That every five seconds it's not certain things coming out of your mouth that are polluting the very testimony you're trying to preach. Families, let's make sure we reverence our God enough to not allow the things that would turn our children away from a holy God. Number three, your kingdom come. This is what the mission is all about. His kingdom being built. This is about a heavenly kingdom with an earthly presence. There is a kingdom that will one day be restored when Christ returns to rule. Not only in our hearts, as some people say, but here physically on this earth. In a literally bodily form. Just as the angels told those that were staring off when Jesus was taken up in the clouds. Number four, your will be done. When you're praying this, you have to ask yourself, whose will gets the priority? Are you following Christ in order to get something for yourself? As Judas and others did, or do you truly follow because you want what he wants? Your will must submit to the master if you are to be a disciple. This is something that will cost you in many ways. Jesus reiterates over and over that it costs something to be a disciple. To the point where he says, you need to take up your cross daily and follow. And then he makes statements like, the righteous will suffer persecution. Let me, let me bring something up. You should not go out of your way to find persecution, but it will find you if you're living godly. Don't be obnoxious. Don't just throw something out there to start a controversy. Be a righteous person living upright for God and persecution will happen. It's inevitable. Give us this day our daily bread. Number five. 
You are to completely rely on God for your sustenance. It does not mean you just sit at home and do nothing and God will provide. That's not what God is talking about here. It means by doing things he has commanded, by being diligent, you will be given sustenance in this life. I told my wife the other week, it was kind of hilarious, I saw this Craigslist post for a Lamborghini. I said, honey, should I ask the church? No, what are you thinking? It's a joke, I'm not going to ask for that. But it was amazing to me that somebody could spend that much money on a car. I mean, it's beautiful. I looked at all the pictures. I'm like, this is incredible. And what blew my mind is the things that we value and cherish in this life sometimes. It's so temporal. It's so temporal. Like the nice couch that we, we like. I mean, I love my couch. But it's so temporal. There are so many things that are more important. And sadly, what happens to many of us is we ask God for provision in our daily life and get angry at him because he gives us enough for provision, but he doesn't give us the other goodies we would really want. If we were to pray this prayer, we'd say, give us our daily bread, plus another list of all the things that I really don't need, but I really want. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The idea of debt was brought into view because we know how much we owe God for what he has done on our behalf. In fact, it was an absolute freedom in that culture when someone's debts were forgiven. The message here is to get us to understand that the, that debt that we owe to the Father is to be lived out in a way that we hold what others owe to us as forgiven. It's very easy for us to hold on to things that people owe us. And I don't mean just in a financial sense. But when someone makes a commitment to us and they don't follow through, what do we tend to do? That's it. I'm never trusting you again. Burn me once. Shame on you and me. I'm done. Not even going to get to the second time. What we don't realize is when we do that, we don't understand the Father's heart. Now, should there be a trust that we build with people? Of course. God's all about faithfulness. He, he stresses that as an important quality of every one of us. Because he himself is faithful. But you have to ask yourself, how faithful are you to him? And if you realize that you're not really faithful to him, maybe then you and I can realize what it means to forgive someone else that owes us. The idea of forgiveness of others is reiterated at the end of this passage. And it should give us a very sober warning as to why unforgiving disciples of Jesus Christ is an oxymoron. It says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's no reason to play gymnastics with this text. It's, it's completely contrary to what a disciple of Christ should be doing. Number seven. Do not lead us into temptation. This implies that you are aware of temptation 
or enticement to sin, as Jesus tells his disciples, actually says this in Mark 14, 38, says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You and I know the areas of our lives where we can go astray. You know the things that will cause you to stumble. And yet you and I go to those things constantly over and over again, knowing that that next step will lead me over the line into sin. And if we're aware of that, don't pray for God to remove the temptation if you're well aware of where that temptation is and you don't do anything proactively to avoid it or altogether go another route. God does not entice any of us to sin. We sin, as James says, because of our own heart. Because lust, when it's conceived, produces sin. We have a desire for it. We, get, we give in to that desire, and what ends up happening? We sin. Number eight. Deliver us from the evil one. Satan's not after your tires, folks. He's not there poking tires every day, trying to mess up your day that way. He's got higher priorities. He's gunning for you. He's gunning for your kids. He's not playing games. Your lack of coffee is not Satan's attack. There are too many Christians praying Satan does attack, doesn't attack but refuse to submit to God in their daily life. In fact, James tells us this. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is a statement that's made that you need to do something before you can resist the devil. And that is submission to God. There are too many people asking for Satan to flee, to run away, trying to resist him without the word of God. God's not going to protect you and me if we're constantly outside the word and wondering why we're not living a victorious Christian life. It shouldn't surprise you that you keep screwing up if you're not in the word. It just shouldn't surprise you. Because you're not submitting to his word because you're not reading his word. You're not asking to hear from him. There are a lot of things in this life that you, think, you and I think we know very well. But you give us five, ten years away from those things, we're not going to remember everything well. If you were to take your practice, whatever that career is that God's called you to, and you stop for 10 years learning anything else on, in that practice, or even refreshing some of the things that you know, put you back in that same, same situation 10 years later, you will not perform to that same ability. Period. And yet Christians think they can live apart from the Word of God and still follow and do what God says. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. Your prayer for deliverance will only be as effectual as your personal submission to God's word. Your prayer for deliverance will only be as effectual as your personal submission to God's word. Church, our lives are to revolve around community and not individuality. It's not about me and me. 
Does God hold us personally accountable? Sure he does. But why do you think that certain sins, when, whenever they were committed in the context of the nation of Israel, they affected the whole community? So I'm going to ask you, before we, we, we conclude the sermon this morning, to ask yourself a question before we, we, we come to the conclusion here. What are ways that right now, currently, I'm affecting the church and I'm not realizing it? What are some ways that I'm affecting the church right now in its current state and I'm not realizing that I am? Ask questions like, how is my marriage affecting those around me here? How is my parenting affecting those around here? How is my job affecting those around here? Does God provide for you well? If he does, how does it affect the church? If you're reaching your children, and your children have Christ, they already have a personal relationship with him, maybe this is where you encourage them as disciples of Christ to reach their friends. Why does it have to be that someone becomes an older adult that we start thinking they need to take their faith seriously? There are certain children that from their mouth God speaks and it's amazing what God does. See, we read those cute stories in the Bible that, you know, God used someone like Samuel and David. You know, we, we sing the song, only a boy named David, only a little slang. Yeah, those kind of songs, right? But God used those people. Why are we so antithetical many times in the way we live when it comes to the Word of God? How many of us have committed our children in a dedication service to the Lord only to take Him back or them back? No, I'm not doing what you want, God. I'm going to do it my way and have my kids grow up the way I want them to. They're going to make a boatload of money and buy me a yacht. What are we going after, guys? What's our goal? What's our, what, what's our mission? So in conclusion, I have a couple questions. Number one, are your prayers mostly focused on personal wants and needs, or do you take time to pray for the needs of others? Ask yourself, do I pray a lot for others, or am I really kind of like the majority is always me, 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 me? Lord, take care of my needs, my health, my family, my car, my house, my job. I dare say if we took time to pray for the needs of others, it may very well be that God wants us to be the instrument of help to others. And the reason we don't pray for others is because God knows your wallet. God knows what you have on hand. And the reason sometimes we don't pray for those other needs is because we know for some reason God's going to prompt our heart to go do something about it. You ever see those commercials that really tug at your heartstrings? That emotional music in the background and someone's in need? I want you to stop for a second and realize that there are people around you that are just as hurting as that commercial you saw but you just didn't see the drama. You didn't hear the music. Because you were too full of yourself, and I was too full of myself. There are people all around us that are in need, and we're too busy praying for ourselves, and for our needs and our wants.
Ask yourself, family, remember? In praying for others, maybe God wants us as a family to reach out to that person or that family. Maybe God wants me to do something else in church that I haven't done before because I haven't really prayed about this. The reason we don't pray these prayers is they're risky, right? Like if God convicts us of something, you've got to do it. So you're not going to pray for something you don't want to do, right? Like most of the time, it's just not how it works. We don't pray prayers that are huge because we want to go do them. We pray the minimal ones, you know, the ones that we can think we can accomplish tomorrow so we can check it off and be like, I'm done, I got it done. Number two, how many people have you personally discipled in your life? How many people have you personally discipled in your life? And what do I mean by that? I want to make sure I, I clarify this because you're going to have a different definition potentially than someone else. I'm talking an accountable relationship where you could immerse in the word and you saw growth as a community with that person and others. These are all things I will do my best to define later on as we speak of discipleship probably next week. But remember, the end goal of discipleship is conformity to Christ. So how many relationships in this church do you have with people where you both encourage each other to conform to Christ? Like the end goal is not to become like so-and-so. The end goal is to be more like Jesus and to conform to his image. So ask yourself, how many people have I been in a relationship with with that particular goal in mind to make them a disciple of Christ, to follow him and to be conformed to his image? Let me be practical. We're going to talk about this more in depth next week. Without accountability, you and I fall. Every one of us will fall if we're not accountable. In fact, that's the reason why we define discipleship this way. Intentionally equipping believers with the word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. Let me put it this way, folks. If I'm not held accountable, I won't do what I ought to do as a pastor. And neither will you as a believer. Oh, you and I may pull ourselves up by the bootstraps for a little while, get going. Yes, I've got motivation. And let me ask you personally, how did your prayer life go when you weren't held accountable? How did your reading go when you weren't held accountable? You see, all those things, they fall off if we don't have other people speaking into our lives to say, hey, here's what's important, here's what God's been showing me. How are you doing on your reading? How are you doing in your prayer life? How is your mom doing? Have you reached out to her again? How's that coworker that you were talking about that you had a conversation about the Lord with? You see, folks, we stop the minute we don't care about accountability. Because sadly, every single one of us, if we look at the Word of God, we see people that fell. And we know people in our lives personally that have fallen because they weren't held accountable to things. Don't think of accountability as a bad thing. Accountability is a good thing. In fact, here's what's why accountability is so important. Take heed, what's the word? Lest you fall. And by the way, there's also a community that restores the person in Galatians when they say, if a person's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual... This is supposed to be a community project. You're supposed to help that person back up and keep moving. Folks, there's no Lone Ranger Christians. And we're not going to let you fall by yourself here in this church. If I know what's going on and the leadership knows what's going on, we're going to do our best to help out and reach out. 
We obviously can't pick everybody up and do everything for them. We can't. I would love to be able to infuse people with a passion for the Lord and doing things that God wants. But as much as I can as a pastor, I will be encouraging. I will try to stress holy living. I will try to stress discipleship because it's important for every single person in this church, without exception, whether you've been saved for 30 years or just two. It doesn't matter. So in closing, I want you to ask those questions. Are your prayers mostly focused on your personal wants and needs, or do you take time to pray for the needs of others? And number two, how many people have you personally discipled in your life? Ask that question sincerely before God. How many people have you personally taken the time to really work through the word with them and have them become faithful followers of Christ, partnering with you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement that we see from Christ in his prayer that he wants us to model. Father, we thank you for um, this church family and just each and every believer that's been faithful. Faithful to be here, faithful to be in the word and in prayer. We ask that you'd help us all to be uh, held accountable. Lord, we know that one day you will hold us all accountable as we stand before you. Father, we ask that none of us fall and, and, and hurt our testimony and hurt our walk with you. Father, we ask that we as a church would love one another in a way that would be pleasing to you, that we'd be more passionate about serving, that we'd be more passionate about the mission, making disciples. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.